0: Hey guys, this is Daniel Burnett with trainlikearanger.com. I'm very excited to have Brad Thomas on the podcast. Brad was, uh, was an army ranger who, uh, fought in the battle of Mogadishu, which was later represented in the movie black Hawk down, which we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, Brad later became a Delta force operator and he's now a musician, uh, with his band silence and light. So let me go ahead and pull Brad in here. How are you doing, sir? What's going on, dude? It's a, it's an honor to talk to you. I'm, I'm super uh, pumped that you agreed to come on the podcast. So welcome. Uh, so that being said, uh, can we kind of talk about your your band? I've listened to a few of your songs, and your music is really good. Cool.
1: Uh, I'm uh, I'm glad that it connected. Um, you know, I don't think that people in general understand like the amount of work that goes into uh, an album, and you know, I got to give a shout out to everybody involved. You know, it's it's like a monster. You know, there are people that do graphic design stuff. There are people that do the engineering and recording piece, there are my fellow bandmates, uh, the whole writing process, people that mix, people that master and all of that. And uh, you know, it's it's you start to realize, oh, and uh, you know, merchandise and things like that, you start to realize that like you're you're kind of running a business at some point. So it's always music first and trying to, you know, trying to keep that, uh, you know, going the way that it should go and everything else. But then there's this whole other side of it. And most people don't understand that side of it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's a lot of work. Do you guys, uh, do you guys tour a lot?
1: So right as the album, you know, released and things started to get spun up, uh, not too long after that was when COVID came. So we had, a handful of things. We've done a a few like one-off private benefit shows with different folks. We did one recently with Old Dominion. Um, We've done one with Lenny Kravitz and uh, have some more stuff planned. I think we've got something with Billy Idol coming up and, you know, we're happy to do that. Uh, Right now, the focus just because of COVID was really kind of writing and getting everything finished for album two. So that's, that's what we've been doing all through COVID when we couldn't play out, we couldn't tour or do any of that stuff. It was, you know, okay, well, let's focus and get this album written and finished. So we're, uh, probably five or six weeks away from going into the studio and recording album too. And we've got a record label involved and we've got a publicist and all kinds of good stuff. So we think it's going to get a lot more traction. This, everything is, uh, you know, the songs are more mature. Everything is, it's just better, you know, and it took us a while to find our sound and find our niche. Who are we? You know, who are we as a band? What do we sound like? All of that. It took a while. It basically took album one to figure that out. And, you know, now that we found that we're we're kind of in the in the zone. So
0: yeah, good and stuff. it sounds it sounds excellent. I've been listening to uh, to War 22 and Look After Me on like uh, on repeat. And those are. Those are a couple of songs that caught my eye. Uh those are great. So your band is is made up of all special operators, right?
1: Yeah, either uh current serving, former, you know, but kind of a mix of everybody. And that wasn't by design. It was really when I started the thing, it was me and Jason Everman who was uh also in the Ranger Regiment with me. And uh prior to being in the army, he was in both Nirvana and Soundgarden. Oh, that's and cool. so Jason and I were, you know, had been friends a long time and I got the idea of you know putting a music project together whether it was a band whether it was me and him writing songs whatever it might be and take the royalties you know sell the music take the royalties and give those to charitable organizations that we believe would help veterans and first responders and things like that so that's that's kind of where it started i stood up a social media page and as soon as i started you know talking about what i was doing People just jumped on board. And next thing you know, we've got a MARSOC officer, former MARSOC officer, like, hey, man, I play the bass, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, jump on, you know, let's meet up and see if it works and everything else. And and it did. So it it really kind of grew organically all the way to the point of having, you know, multi-Grammy award-winning producer uh, volunteer to help out in producing the album. So, and he's a former Marine Corps veteran. So it just... It, that's that's kind of how it grew and how it started and that's what we're doing. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And what's uh what's your role in the band?
1: Um i I do all the songwriting, so I write all the music and uh and play guitar.
0: That's awesome. Um, you know, I listened to your podcast with with Pat Mac- McNamara, which yeah. uh you two served together, which I thought was uh was really cool. And yeah. and uh and you're talking about music and things like that. Uh, who are some of the, the musicians that inspired you to, to create your music now?
1: It's interesting because, you know, originally if you asked me who I liked and who inspired me as like a guitar player, it's it's a whole separate group of people. And it wasn't until writing music for this and kind of, having to tap into creatively, kind of tap into this space of like, you know, what do I want this to be about? Do I want this to be about dropping bombs and, you know, shooting dudes with a machine gun? Or, you know, do I want it to be more, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, more more about like the feelings involved with that and the emotions and everything else. So when I when I started to think about it, it was more like, this is an Alice in Chains kind of thing. It's uh, very much a, you know, not happy-go-lucky music, not driving down the LA strip, you know, partying and stuff like that. It's about some of the heavier stuff and dealing with some of the heavier stuff. It, it's also not like a bummer, right? It's not like, it's not music that's, uh, you know, you want to put a gun in your mouth after you listen to it. It's <laughs> It's meant to be inspiring and it's meant to connect with people that have experienced loss or, you know, experienced trauma of any sort. You know, that's, that's kind of what it's meant to be. So really the grunge, you know, the grunge sound, the grunge era was like more influential on me than what I understood it to be. Like, I didn't know that it had that impact on me until I started writing music. And then I'm like, man, this is, this could be from 1993, you know, this, this is a tune that could be from 95 or whatever. It just, it's that era, that vibe, that zone, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I really like that era of music. And, and that's why when I listen to it, I think that's something unique that, that you guys have, you know, that connection on that side of, of, uh, of things. And so I, you know, I, I thought that was interesting. And then when I listened to the music, I was like, damn, this is really good music. And it does remind me of that era of music. Uh kind of like, you know, I wrote down Metallica kind of uh, Pantera Megadeth type uh type instrumental feel, you know, it's just yeah it sounds really good.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm psyched for the second album because I feel like we've kind of perfected what our sound is. And so, you know, to take that a step further, we barely lit that album across the finish line. And and I mean that not in a way that like we just put shitty stuff together. It's like you build a collection of songs, and then when you put them all together and try and flow them, sometimes they don't always work. So we wrote some songs that were more like this, and we wrote other songs that were more like that. And when you start to put them all together, like, oh, we had 12, but really that turns into 10 because these two don't really fit. And then we didn't like some of the lyric content on, you know, uh, two of the other songs. And then one, we couldn't get lyrics finished in time. so. We ended up with eight songs and, and it didn't have all the pieces and parts that we wanted it to have. Like we just didn't have time to get to it all. So you could say, why don't you just wait? And really, you know, building a brand, building a band, building whatever you're doing, it takes a lot of time to do. And I wanted to just get something out there because that's kind of, that's when the stopwatch starts. Like, okay, we're a real thing now people know, people can find it. It's on Apple Music, it's on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on 55 other streaming platforms. You can get CDs on Amazon, like it's out there, right? But we just wanted to get something done so that we could move on and, you know, build everything else out, like building merchandise, getting our website, you know, built up. How do we do that? What kind of, all that stuff. So for me, there was a hurry to kind of get that done so that we could get everything else started. Now that we got that done, we've had time to really kind of marinate on a bunch of songs. We have, I probably had like, I don't know, from three or 400 songs, pair that down to like a handful of ones that we'll work on each time we're together. And we've been able to put like multiple layers of stuff in and things that just didn't exist on the first album. So we feel like it's gonna connect with more people musically because it's just musically better um everything's more thought out it just it sounds better man it's it's good stuff so we're psyched to get that out
0: yeah i can definitely relate with uh with the building the brand and feeling you know that feeling of being rushed i think we kind of put those those timelines on ourselves, but i i definitely can relate to I got to get this done you know that type of uh, feeling it's yeah. uh at
1: some point it's just like it'll go on forever like we can we can perfect something forever and it'll never get done you know right and for me it was like let's just get this let's get it going so that we can get on to the rest of it i felt like from the beginning my goal was never to try and make a big impact with album one because you're nobody you know you're coming from nowhere and you know you don't have anybody behind you you don't have a record label you don't have people promoting you or doing anything to help so for me it was i set a small goal that was reasonable and i wanted to have like five thousand album downloads that was my goal like if we can do that i'm happy like we have crushed that you know in the hundreds of thousands more you know and done really well and you know, that was a bit of a surprise. And that was just based on social media and word of mouth and things like this. And, you know, happy to happy to do this kind of stuff, because it's just helping me promote what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, that leads into a topic that uh, I'm curious to get your opinion on, because I felt this way. You know, was it was it kind of, uh, you know, I've noticed you've done a lot of interviews and things. Was it kind of What was the feeling at first getting into those interviews, you know, coming from the background that you come from? Was that kind of a a big step? Well, just being public in general,
1: you know, I I was never a public person. I think I have a pretty uh, like I'm not the gray man, (laughs) you know, even when I served at Delta, like I wasn't the gray man. I have a pretty strong personality and. You know, I'm I'm a pretty fun dude in my group of people, you know, my clique and everything else, Um, but I never was like a public person, never wanted to be a public person. The only reason, to be honest, that I wanted to become public about this was to basically exemplify the old ranger adage, you know, rangers lead the way and lead by example and everything else Um, because I wanted anybody, whether it's an EMT who's struggled whether it's a dentist who, you know, lost his wife, whoever it might be, I wanted to let people know I've been there too. I've dealt with the dark stuff. I've lived through things that a lot of other people didn't live through, and if I can do this and I can find a way to give back to my community or to help people or to connect with people and do something healthy, creative and positive, if I can do it, then you can do it too. And I wanted like the only reason I post any military stuff at all on any of my social media is to let people know, like, Hey, I was there. Not, not this is Brad, the rocker or, or, you know, Brad, the dude has no idea. People don't really get that with social media. They see a small little piece and they don't see every one of your posts. So I'll put every you know week or two, I'll put something up just as a reminder to people, you know um, I've been there, you know, so don't, don't think that I don't understand what you've been through, you know? Right.
0: Yeah. I think the way you do, it's very good. Um, I follow your page and I can definitely relate, you know, if, it was weird for me as well to start this page. And, and, uh, I, so many times I question, am I, am I doing the right thing? You know, that type, that type of uh, feeling. And, uh, and the more I go on, the more I have guys like you come on and, and share your experiences, the, the more, uh, the better i feel about it you know like uh this is a really cool thing and and it's really cool to have guys like you and who are sharing your experiences and who who come from a mountain of uh of uh experiences and wisdom so so it's it's been a really cool journey uh for me and and i think uh your band is going to be highly succe- successful just listening to your music and you know seeing what you're posting and your interviews i've watched your interviews and so uh i think it's going even, of-
1: even that you know it's it's not about like my personal success. I'm not doing this to put money in my own pocket, right? It costs by far more money than I'll ever recoup in royalties, unless we're selling like in the millions of albums, right? Like that's, it's, it's an expensive thing to do. You can do it cheap and we wanted to be real and we wanted to show people that we were real. So we did it the right way. We went into a studio and like you had to pay for a hotel and you have to pay for flights and rental cars and music equipment rental. and Hey, we want a new snare drum for this one song. Let's get, you know, different snare drums in here. All that stuff, man. It's very costly. So we're not asking people to give us money. We're not saying, you know, hey, spend spend money and send it my way for my foundation or whatever. I don't want people's money. If you buy a song or you buy an album or you stream stuff, you're contributing, you know, by proxy. So we're taking 100% of our music royalties and giving them to two different uh, chair of organizations that we believe in. And that's, that's kind of the whole point. It's like, spend the 99 cents, spend the 9.99 on the album, whatever. It's easy. You're getting a great album and you're contributing at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's yeah. great. And and so we'll get in a, a little bit more to your military career. You know, uh, what I thought was interesting, you know, I, when I was listening to to your other podcasts, I tried to do my research before I talked to uh, talk to you guys, but, you know you're talking about how you went into the recruiter's office and you told the recruiter you wanted to be Delta Force and they they left you out. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: yeah, yeah. so I had uh, I had a buddy there there were basically three things that led me to the military, and I, I haven't even really been able to figure this all out until somebody asked me recently about it. And I've told the story a bunch of times, but there were three things that kind of all happened at the same time. one, The band I was in just kind of funneled everything. You know, I wanted to play music. I didn't want to be in the military. I had no desire to be in the military. I had the uh, maybe about 12, 13, 14. I started reading books about Rangers in Vietnam and uh, CIA in Vietnam. And the Vietnam War in general just kind of intrigued me. So I always was interested in that, but got heavily into music. And I played music from the time I was a little kid. Anyway, so the band I'm in just kind of tanks and everything just we had a great opportunity to do something really cool. And it just kind of all went to shit. Uh, A buddy of mine that had joined the Air Force came back from basic training in the AIT. And he was telling me about um, these recruiters that came at the end of basic training. And they were like, hey, we need guys to go, you know, serve in this special unit that jumps in behind enemy lines and picks up down pilots and stuff like that. And when he was talking about it, I was like, "That sounds pretty cool." And the third thing was the invasion of Panama. So December of '89, uh, the Rangers invade Panama, and they end up with the help of other folks uh, capturing Manuel Noriega and the whole drug war and everything else. So all three of those things kind of hit, you know, between December and January of 1990. And I went in and I talked with the Air Force recruiter. And the only reason I went to the Air Force—nothing against the Air Force. Um, the only reason I went there was just because my buddy had been there. So I had nobody in my family in the military. I had none of my friends had joined the military. Um, and so I talked with the air force guy about doing that job of, you know, special tactics or, you know, whatever that might be. And he kept telling me, lying to me that he would get me a guarantee. And I, I said, I understand that you, you don't give contracts, but. I just want the right to try. Like, I don't want to be in the middle of basic training and you go, Hey, we need a burger flipper <laughs> in the uh, Spokane, Washington. So you're going out there. I want right. to at least the right to try something. And he kept lying and lying and saying he could do that, but he didn't do it. <clears throat> and then, and then I was leaving one day and the army guy was like, Hey man, come in here. And uh, he says, what's that guy telling you what's going on? I said, well, he won't guarantee me anything. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, like Delta Force. And I don't know why I said that, but <laughs> he goes, well, you can't do that. You got to do something before that, like Special Forces. And I go, okay, I'll do that. And he goes, well, you can't do that either. You got to do something before that, like a Ranger. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. So he put in like a VHS tape or, or a DVD of like some Ranger school video or some crap like that. And, uh, and that was kind of how it all started.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. So so you really uh, when you showed up, uh, you said you you read some books about Rangers in Vietnam. You know, I read uh, one called Charlie Rangers. Uh, Have you read that book? I probably
1: did. I don't remember now.
0: That was a really good book. I I read that on the on the way to Afghanistan. Uh, So my first time deploying, I was reading it and I was like, man, this is going to be off the chain. This, uh." But when I whenever I got to Afghanistan, things were a little bit more set up. missions were deliberate. So it was nothing like, you know, Vietnam, but when I was reading that book I was like, man, I was like getting real amped up because uh man, back in the day it was crazy. And and uh so you got in uh so was it was it called the option 40 back then whenever you you got that contract? Um I wasn't
1: even really aware that I signed a contract that was like an option 40 contract. I knew that I was guaranteed that I would go to basic airborne school or basic AIT airborne school, and then the, back then the Ranger indoctrination program. And then from there, whatever could happen. And uh, I just knew it as a Ranger contract. They didn't refer to it as an option 40 contract, it may have been called that. And uh, I was in the middle of basic training when Desert Storm happened. I was actually just starting AIT. And uh, the battalion commander for all the basic training, you know, companies or whatever they were called, he got us all in formation one day and he said, all right, men, you're all mechanized needs of the army. I don't care if you got a contract. I don't care, blah, 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 blah. And everybody's like, I don't know what, I don't know what he means. But basically we got back in our company areas and the drill sergeants were like, yeah, you guys are all going to go do mechanized tank training kind of stuff. And ride in the back of a Bradley fighting vehicle, that's going to be your new job. And I was like, man, fuck this. I, I called my dad, who was connected, and I was like, yo, get me out of this. I didn't sign up to go ride around in the back of a tank. Like, I want to be challenged. And not that there's anything against, you know, guys that are serving mechanized. It just wasn't my thing. And he said, you know what, you made a commitment, you know, you're going to stick it out. And uh, Within a day or two, uh, one of our drill sergeants gathered us up and you got to think at the time, like there was no war, right? Other than Desert Shield that had just started, none of my drill sergeants had combat patches. They didn't even have, like one of them had an EIB. One of them had jump wings. That's it. Like none of them had ranger tabs. It It wasn't as accessible as it is, you know, as it became later and definitely isn't it's more accessible now to everybody. Uh, Anyway, um, one of the drill sergeants was like, hey, you Ranger guys, like they can't mess with your contract, not even needs of the army. So uh, me and a handful of other guys in my platoon, I think there were 12 of us that all were able to stay with our Ranger contract and went on to do just that.
0: That's great. Uh, Mm -hmm. You probably noticed my camera is uh, frozen up. Okay. I, got the, I got the time written down. Uh let me fix this real quick. I run into the technical difficulties every now and then. I'm still
1: bugging over the whole reverse angle.
0: <laughs> like, what cool. the fuck? You gotta love technology. Um, okay. You're good now. I'm in? Yeah. Yes. All right, guys, we're back. Technical difficulties. But um uh so you left off. You said yeah, you said none of them had combat patches right
1: yeah so none of the none of the drill sergeants had you know this was an era of like peacetime army and most people uh didn't join the military to be a career soldier they joined uh for college money as as crazy as that might sound today so guys did four years and then they got the gi bill and they got their college paid for all my drill sergeants none of them had none of them had a combat patch none of them had a ranger tab one guy had an EIB. One guy had jump wings, had done five jumps, wasn't even, a, you know, in an airborne unit. And uh, anyway, they, they gathered us up soon after that and said, you know, hey, the guys that have the Ranger contract, like you're you're still cleared to go forward with your training. You're not going to get switched the needs of the Army.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah, that yeah. worked out. And, and so can you talk about what RIP was like back then and what regiment was like back then?
1: yeah i mean that's that's like a whole podcast and yeah it could be (laughs) um rip to be honest like i don't know that i learned anything you know it was more just three weeks of first of all i didn't get my last jump in airborne school until too late on friday to go into the rip class that was starting and that's For people that don't know, you finish airborne school and usually you do, you know, a jump a day during jump week. Uh, Usually the weather's jacked up and you don't get all your jumps. And so one day you end up jumping three times and maybe you'll get enough by Friday. But that can always, you know, not not happen that way. So anyway, I didn't get my last jump until too late on Friday to go with the rip guys that were leaving that had already graduated airborne school so we waited until monday and then the rip holdover guys picked us up so i spent three and a half weeks in a rip holdover which was like three and a half weeks of just torture and doing details and you know getting our dicks knocked in the dirt every morning at pt and stuff like that so it probably helped prepare me a little bit more and i was fortunately one of those guys that could kind of like i could run and didn't didn't really fall out of a lot of runs or anything like that um you know i don't know what my pt test scores were like back then i don't remember but you know i was i was able to kind of hang so doing that three and a half weeks of rip holdover probably helped me physically just to be more ready for rip but when rip actually started i don't i don't remember exactly i know we did like ranger history stuff and we did you know, classes on ambushes and patrolling and all of that kind of jazz. Uh, we did some jumps and, you know, night jumps and, and stuff like that. Uh, we did a week in the field, I think, at the very end. And the whole time you had like prerequisites that you had to pass, like a 12-mile road march in a certain amount of time and a five-mile run. And so you did all those things and there were guys that didn't do it. And they would have to like do it a couple of days later again. And if they passed it, they were in the, I think the biggest thing that surprised me was it was the first time that I saw guys just quitting. And so my rip class started with probably 300 or more guys. And I think we graduated in the seventies. Oh, wow. And so you would think, Oh, it must've been so hard. And maybe it was, I don't know, but it was just guys not even trying. And I, I didn't understand that. I, I didn't understand why you signed up, you wanted to do this and you're going to not even try. Like you're going to quit before it even really gets tough. And uh, anyway, I found that kind of interesting and it, and it weirdly gave me more strength. You know, it was like, I'm not quitting. I'm not going to be like that dude that just quit in the middle of the road march or those Thirty guys that just quit on the road march or whatever. Like I'm not quitting. And kids ask me all the time on social media. They'll be like, "What did you do to prepare?" And I didn't do anything to prepare. I rolled into the army a long-haired goon and uh, you know was probably smoking weed the day before and you know smoking cigarettes for sure and partying and whatnot. And uh, you know each step of the army kind of prepared you for the next. But I always tell these kids. You only have to do one thing. One one thing. Hold on. We're we're backwards here. <laughs> and and it's a negative, but it's don't quit. That's all you have to do. Like, if you don't quit and you keep trying, you'll make it. You know, it's people get in their brains and they get in their head and they're like, I don't think I can do this. Uh I don't know what battalion's gonna be like, but I'm worried or afraid of it. So I'm just not gonna do it. And um anyway, that was that was my big takeaway from When I went through RIP, it was just experiencing, you know, hundreds of people quitting. And we had formation. So at airborne school, when the Ranger guys came down to pick us up, they show up. And this is the first time you've seen a dude in a black, then black beret. And these dudes are like, you know, whatever. They yelled something out, get in formation. So like everybody goes running over with their D bags and everything else. And the dude just starts screaming who wants to quit? 7. And hands were just flying. And I was looking around like, wait, why are people quitting? You know, why are people quitting? Like, we haven't even started. And uh, one of my best friends through airborne school was standing right next to me, raised his hand, never saw him again. (laughs) But it was like, I don't, I don't understand that. So I, I can understand that people maybe sign up for something that they think that they want to do. And then when they start getting challenged, maybe they're like second-guessing their decision, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd say some things don't change because I noticed that, uh, you know, the high. Uh, I saw a, a bunch of people quit in pre-ras before anything even started, day one, when they picked us up from the airborne parking lot. Again, people were quitting. So th- some things don't change. Yeah, that was interesting to see. It's like you have this contract the whole time. <laughs> and then you get there, it's game time. They're like, nope, I don't want to play the game. You yeah, know? I quit. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. So what was regiment like back then? So you get to to regiment um, kind of, what was that like uh, uh, as a newcomer coming to regiment? So um,
1: people ask me this too, and they asked me it about being at the unit, uh, but the same thing applies even graduating rip and you get to put on your black beret and you're like, now I'm a ranger. And you realize once you graduate that like, Oh, now it's just starting right? Like I have to go prove myself to my new team, my squad, my platoon. Like it doesn't end. You constantly have to perform. So graduating something, it's it's not really an accomplishment that you're, um, you can't rest on your laurels and go, oh, I graduated RIP. Now I'm, you know, great and I don't have to do anything else. So that was the first time I guess that I learned that lesson was You know, walking down the sidewalk in front of B Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, and like, we didn't have our jungle boots yet. And that was how you could tell, like, all the new guys was uh, they were wearing the, we called them leg boots, but it was like the black leather boots that you got in basic training. Right. And we're walking down the sidewalk, all, you know, feeling proud of our black berets that we're wearing. And uh, this dude starts screaming, nice boots, cherry. And water balloons start, you know, getting hefted at us and uh it was just it was a different time it was uh you know again it's it's tough for people to understand back then when there was no war you know it was a completely different animal and so because there wasn't a good way and a really you know aside from pt tests and some of the things that you had to do like uh five mile runs or road marches and things like that there was no way to really test the guy, right? Because you didn't have combat to test if the guy was going to be able to make it or not. And so they cooked up all kinds of crazy shit for us to do. And in a lot of ways, I think it was a lot harder back then because the things that we did really, it hurt a lot of people, you know? We didn't have a good physical fitness program. They had, you know, so you had dudes that were probably walking around broken down. You know, if they were supposed to be operating at 80-90%, they were probably operating at like 60%. Just from getting crushed every day, from getting hazed or, you know, corrective training, whatever you want to call it, uh physical training and just constantly getting, you know, uh physically, you know, doing something physical, not getting enough calories, not getting enough sleep, all that stuff. And uh, you know, we had That was the only way we could simulate the stress of combat was just make pretend. Um, So it was, it was a different army, you know, it wasn't even, yeah, it's a different regiment, but it was a different army back then too. Huge differences.
0: Yeah. And I've noticed in regiment, they've tried to, um, they've tried to ramp up their physical fitness knowledge, nutrition knowledge. They try to implement that stuff a little bit more. Uh, Hazing, hazing probably still around pretty strong. I don't know. It was there whenever I was there. Uh, hazing. Hazing is definitely the word I would use. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would say they they've tried to wise up with that stuff. Um, so so it was a, a peacetime army, um, and then and then was was the um, leading into the Battle of, of Mogadishu. Um, you know, was that the first deployment for you? Yeah,
1: that was that was the first deployment. So I got. I got to b company three seven five uh april of ninety one and that was you know only a handful of months after Panama, so all of the leadership in my platoon was you know panama vets they had done a combat jump and things like that and over that summer you know as i think back then the turnover rate was was super high and so guys were moving up very quickly um you know these were guys that were competing as 11 bravos with people that had no combat uh these guys had ranger tabs cibs and you know combat jumps and stuff like that and in terms of promotion we're getting promoted very quickly which was a good thing but you know when you got promoted you kind of moved to a different section and things like that so there was just a lot of turnover when I got there, I was the 12th guy in my squad. So, you know, a squad leader, two team leaders, some tab E4s, and then a whole bunch of privates. By that fall, I was the fourth guy in my squad. Everybody had quit or guys that were doing their four years that had been to Panama and they were getting out of the army. They were ETSing and moving on. So, I went from number 12 to number four very quickly and I got afforded the opportunity to go to ranger school after only being in battalion like five months because I was the only dude in my platoon that passed the pre-ranger PT test. And, uh, so they sent me there very early and, and everything else, but yeah, just super different.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, the way that we did it, whenever I was in, there was a like rotations, like there was like a, six month, uh, training rotation. And it was like pretty, there were similar criteria we were going to hit. Uh, they varied some things here and there, but it was very systematic, like six month training cycle, about uh three, four month deployment. And then it was just like a uh, kind of a repetitive cycle. Um, you know, how, how did y'all, how did y'all do it back in the day? Was it something similar to that?
1: Yeah. like I mean, as- you had your alert cycle and you know, your joint readiness kind of, Uh, stuff that you would do. So, you know, you would do all the appropriate training events and things like that you had to do, you know, before assuming your alert cycle and all of that. It was very cyclical. And I think that was something that I didn't really understand. I didn't know that going into it. I was expecting it to be like, hey, we're going to do jungle stuff because we think we're going to end up in the jungle and then, you know, just do nothing but that. But it was constantly like, oh, now you gotta go do an airfield seizure now you gotta go do this. And now we've got Hilo week. And it just, you know, kind of was a a cycle. And after you do the cycle a couple of times, it's kind of repetitive, you know. Right. Although usually by your, you know, second or third cycle of training, you're, and even throw deployments in there too. You're you're kind of doing it at a different level. You know, so it's one thing to go through the training as a private it's another thing to be a team leader. And, you know, now you're kind of guiding privates through the whole training event or, or deployment or whatever it might be. Um, But yeah, it was just, it was a cyclical thing. And to me, that was kind of the bummer of the whole thing.
0: Yeah. It gets a little, uh, it was like I talked about it sometimes like groundhogs day or something, you know, (laughs) of course it changes with the roles, but, um, yeah, you kind of seen some things before and then it's like, uh, you're on, you're on repeat, but, um, but yeah, it's really good training and the repetitiveness is good. I mean, it makes, uh makes things efficient, but um, yeah. Yeah. So let's see. So can we, uh, uh, let's talk about operation Gothic serpent and, and go into, you know, your experiences there. Um, so that kicked off. Was that sort of, um, was that like a quick thing? Was it like, Hey, we're kicking off. Uh, You guys need to be ready quick, or was it something that was planned and talked about, and then you guys deployed on it?
1: Yeah. So, interestingly, we were in Texas uh, doing a joint readiness exercise, and that's something I don't know if they if they still do that stuff or if it's uh, something different now or whatever. But we were there, and it's kind of all the components of SOCOM work together, and you know they're doing missions together the way that they would in combat, and we were i don't know maybe a week or two weeks into that uh could have been less i don't remember exactly but uh we got called into like the leadership tent we were in fort bliss and you know on some airfield or something and basically hey here's the situation this thing happened nobody even really had ever heard of somalia or mogadishu you know much less that we would go there or might go there um But they kind of explained the whole situation kind of like an intel brief, but it wasn't that formal. It was kind of like we've been providing aid to Somalia. The people there are starving and the UN has been distributing food in Somalia, but there are warlords there and the warlords are stealing these different factions are fighting one another and they're stealing the food and they're hurting Americans and they're hurting UN forces, you know, when they're stealing, stealing the food. So. The president wants us to go and capture, you know, these different warlords and put an end to that so that we can get back to feeding the people of Somalia. You know, that was that was kind of how it was laid out. And more more to follow. You know, that was basically it. I think we went out and did some more training and then it was kind of like, hey, another American was killed. The president wants to do this. So you guys are going to go to Fort Bragg and you're going to do do a train up and how you're gonna do this thing when when you're over there and, you know, go do it. So we went to Fort Bragg, we did like maybe a 10 day train up, it could have been eight days, it could have been 11, I don't remember. Um, we did the train up and then at the end of the train up, the kind of decision was, the president isn't ready to do this just yet. So we got sent back to Fort Bliss, Texas, and we landed at the airfield there to continue with training. And, uh, of course, we were bummed and, you know, we're expecting to go do this thing and everything else. And we got met at the plane by, I I can't remember the guy's name, but he was like, hey, don't get off the plane. You're going right back. The president, you know, made the decision. You guys are going to launch. We were like, oh, wow. So we got off the plane so that they could refuel it and do some maintenance. And then we got back on the plane maybe six hours later, flew back to Fort Bragg. We, uh, we were at Fort Bragg for, I think, three days just waiting for transportation and C-5s and load up all the equipment. We got, I think we got issued desert uniforms and we got body armor and things like that that the Rangers didn't even have at the time. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, packed all our stuff up and palletized everything and then uh, flew on over. So we got there and I think uh, somewhere around the 20th of August. 22nd of august something like that and we didn't leave until maybe the 24th of august or of october and so it was about a 90 day trip or so yeah well no 60 day trip
0: yeah and and you know uh that movie covers covers uh you know the battle of mogadishu but there was a lot more happening uh which i think is important to point out there was a lot of successful operations and and um, and you guys were there doing a whole mission. It wasn't like just, uh, you know, the one battle. There was a lot of things happening. So um, can you kind of talk about what what those experiences were like?
1: Yeah, it was it was interesting. Uh, I was talking about this the other day on on uh, some other thing I was doing. And, you know, it definitely gets left out. I'm glad that the movie was made. I'm glad that the book was written because at least, you know, people have a way to understand like all the things that happened during that battle. Um, but, you know, said the same thing, basically. And I, I think I helped with an article for Black Rifle Copy or Havoc Journal or something like that, where we talked about some of the other operations that we did. And, you know, again, that was the last operation. Um, and it was the only one, and even that was actually successful. It just, all the the detainees that we had grabbed off target all killed in the battle. So it it was a success. It just turned out differently than, you know, all the other ones did. Um, but yeah, we, we grabbed a bunch of the people that we were supposed to be grabbing and kind of methodically going after these different high-value targets. And one by one, we were taking them down and capturing them, and everything was moving along. I noticed, and I think everybody would probably tell you the same thing, Every time we would go out into the city, it was just like a little bit more hostile. And, you know, there was never in the movie, maybe it happened with somebody else. It definitely didn't happen with my platoon. But there was never any like, hey, guys, you're going into a really bad area of the city. So be prepared and all that. It was just like every other mission. Like, hey, here's a target building. We're going here. and That was it. There wasn't a whole lot of guidance other than that. We didn't have inner team, inner squad, inner platoon radios. It wasn't like people had access to information the same, Um, you know, so it was just, it was a very different time. Um, But yeah, it was, it was, uh, it it definitely got more hostile at each time we would go out and do things and you could kind of see the escalation of tension in the city in general.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You said you guys didn't carry, uh, radios which I, I i could imagine it was kind of hard to communicate at times like um you know those radios became a big part of of uh operations and things that you know um we did later so it's like even team leaders are carrying radios so sure. um, god that's got to be that's, that had to be kind of tough to you had to like really know what was going on you know
1: well, how do you, you know, how do you disseminate information in the middle of the street in the middle of a gunfight? You know, you can't. So people are just kind of left to guess and you, you know, you gather people and you round them up and point and do all that stuff. But I think one of the things if I were to say, you know, change something, a lot of great learning lessons came from that, like your striker vehicles and all that stuff, like those were all developed because of The situation that we found ourselves in in Mogadishu, which was we don't have any armored vehicles to help extract the force, so we have to get Malaysians and Pakistanis to do it. And so, you know, that automatically turned into, well, we need to have the ability to get ourselves out of situations and self-exfil if if we need to. And, uh, you know, from everybody having a radio to everybody having night vision to everybody having a laser on their gun and a red dot sight of some sort like all those things came about because of Mogadishu so there were a lot of things that were learned if I look back on it and I say what what should we have done better it would have been let's figure out a plan for when everything goes to shit what are we going to do right and because there was really no plan and you know we could have um and, and I don't like hindsight because, you know, we didn't have the knowledge of that. We only have the knowledge of that and the lessons because it happened. Right. When you're living it, you're, you're trying to like unfuck a situation that you have no ability to unfuck because you don't even have the knowledge of what's going on fully. So if I look back and I say, is there one thing we could have done better? It would have been let's come up with a plan when everything hits the fan. What do we do? Maybe we just unload the vehicles and we Alamo up in a building. You know, maybe it's whatever, but we could have done something. Uh, what happens when we can't communicate? How are we going to communicate? There was no conversation about that. So those are some things that I feel like we could have done better. And, and unfortunately, we didn't. And I'm not saying it cost anybody's life or anything like that. We were just dealing with the situation as it was unfolding.
0: And I thought the movie did, uh, did well to kind of show that, that things can get chaotic and, and, um, yeah, uh, it's a great movie. Uh, do you feel like that movie properly represented the, uh, the battle?
1: Um, it didn't represent the part that I was a part of. And so, you know, there are things I understand, Uh, Hollywood, you know, you can't have, you know, there were 120 dudes on the ground that day. You can't have 120 characters in a movie that's 90 minutes long. So they have to condense everything down and make it into a handful of characters. So a lot of the events that are portrayed happen to like one character, but really those happen to like 50 different characters in real life. I I get that. And I get Hollywood having to take liberties with things like that. Um, I would say, you know, for what what i did was like fighting to the objective we were already fighting well prior to getting to the objective so it wasn't like here we come and then everything starts to kind of escalate it was already escalated before we even got close and uh, so to the point that i thought we were at the target building and we were still way short of the target building Um, and then because of not being able to communicate had no idea what we were doing so when my vehicle took off and left and I had to like make my way down the street by myself to catch up to the vehicle. That was a pretty hairy situation. Um, you know, again, like just not knowing what was going on. Yeah. Well, that's crazy.
0: Uh, it's hard to even wrap wrap my head around. You know, like what I find amazing about you and guys like you, um, you know, being in special operations, you would think that, you know, you would get to a point to where things seem seem uh less amazing, but since i've experienced it i th- I find it even more amazing I'm even more of a fan that you know you you experience something like that and then you go, okay, now I want to go delta force you know you you just like um you what what kept you what kept you going after you know after experiencing something like that and saying you know i want to go to the next step now
1: well i mean if if it goes back to like my original goal, it's like that's what I wanted to do, and if anything seeing the way those guys operated seeing their equipment seeing you know they were at a different fitness level everything was it was like imagine playing high school ball and you get to play a game with nfl guys you know like your desire to be in the nfl is probably that much more at that point because you're you're just impressed by the professionalism by the way they you know are carrying themselves everything and so for me it just solidified that and the other thing, you know, really came came down to where else am I going to go? What else am I going to do? You know, am I going to get out of the army now? And afterwards, um, I felt a great loyalty. So most people don't know this. I've said this a few times. I was supposed to go to the recon detachment selection uh, within the Ranger Regiment, and back then it was called RRD, Regimental Recon Detachment. Uh, and those were guys that did like reconnaissance for the Rangers. But they had more specialized training and it was NCOs, not privates, and kind of more laid back and not necessarily first name basis, but definitely more chill. And they got to do military free fall and scuba and waterborne stuff and things like that. And that really interested me. So I was supposed to go to that selection in the fall of 1993, but was in Mogadishu and couldn't go. After Mogadishu, just because of the number of uh, casualties we had in my platoon, and I think you know, my platoon was the group of guys that was driving around in the city looking for the crash sites, and really, it was the element that was sustaining all the casualties. <clears throat> Not that there weren't casualties in the other elements, but so when it was all said and done, I felt like if I had just left afterwards to go to the recon detachment selection, you know, process that they had at the time. I would have been leaving my whole platoon kind of hanging. And so I told them I'll stay for another year and a half or whatever it was, 16 months until the next selection course or whatever. And uh, because I felt like I owed it to, you know, new kids coming on board to kind of relay some of my experience and things like that. And then within a handful of months, we were gearing up to jump into Panama for the, or uh, jump into Haiti. And uh, for the, for the big Mish that never went. But, um, you know, so it was it was cool to kind of now be in charge of a group and be a team leader and, you know, getting dudes ready. And I was gonna be a jump master on my bird and stuff like that for the, for the invasion jump, which would have been really cool. But, so that kind of took me to the recon detachment. And, uh, you know, after about a year and a half staying in the Rangers to kind of get everything up to speed and things like that and help out and be a team player. And then uh, did the recon attachment thing for a while, and I loved that. But, you know, always knew like this is where I ultimately want to end up. So in the fall of 1998, I went to Delta Selection and got selected.
0: So, how did that work from, you know, in general terms, going, you know, you're you're in regiment? Is it like you drop a packet type thing to go?
1: Yeah. So they, it's a mandatory briefing in the Army. Uh, I think everybody E5, and above, or you know, that meets the prerequisites of being able to go to selection at some point. Whether they're in a NCO professional development course, or you know, they're at their unit, they're supposed to attend a briefing for selection. And it's it's pretty vague. They don't go into all the specifics of everything, and uh, and talk about all of it. But they do a good job with the recruiting video that they had to kind of show you what you would be doing at that point also too it's like i knew people that had gone there and although it was before email and the internet and cell phones you know we had people's phone numbers and kept in touch to some degree or you would be at a training event and you would see one of your buddies that went you know or not a buddy but maybe a squad leader from your platoon or whatever who is now there and so you would have a conversation with them and you know kind of understand what they did and everything else so kind of have to stay in a little bit longer to 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 see that and to be able to work with those guys and and kind of understand how it works but um yeah it was it was a good good experience and
0: and so you know do you have any tips for people let's say people who are saying I want to be Delta Force they go they're walking into the recruiter's office and they say I want to be Delta Force do you have any uh tips for for those people
1: there's there's a ton i get asked the same thing a lot you know what can i do to prepare and they they give you everything you need to know to be successful so you don't you know until the point you're you're going to go to selection or you're talking with them and you get a packet you know whatever it might be um, they're going to give you all the information that you need to be successful up there and then it it really is on you just to not quit um, tips for being successful You know, there are a lot of things that play into success with anything, whether it's, you know, being a professional car driver or, you know, a pro NFL player, whatever it might be, uh, staying healthy, not getting injured. That's a huge part, you know, uh, luck timing, all of that, you know, it's, it's all of those things. I was having a conversation with a guy today about the exact same thing, like, I was in Delta for 12 years, but it's not just about performing every day to stay there that long that's impressive to me. It's all the little things. It's, I didn't make a mistake and get fired for it. I didn't do this wrong. You know, I performed when I had to with this. I physically didn't get hurt to the point that now I can't perform the same way. There's so many things, Uh, timing of promotion you know, family life, all of those things play into your longevity in any career, whether it's, you know, tier one military or whether it's, you know, pro level sports or pro level music or anything else. It's it's all about timing and luck and just everything going your way and right place, right time and all that stuff. So, you know, I tell kids that are, that are getting ready to do stuff like that. every step of the way, the military is very much a crawl, walk, run type of environment where you don't go to basic training and they expect you to throw a 50 pound pack on your back and road march for 20 miles. Like they understand they're getting you the basic skills that you need to be a soldier, you know, how to camouflage, how to do this, whatever it might be nowadays. Uh, You're getting all that kind of like basic training to be just at the bare bones minimum, you know, private in an infantry unit or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, so when it's time to go to RIP, same thing. It's like RIP isn't some, or RASP now. um, It's not some unobtainable thing. You just have to not quit, you know, stay healthy, keep yourself, you know, from getting sick or whatever it might be. Um, You know, all of that stuff plays into it. And some of it's out of your control, you know?
0: Yeah, baby steps.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you don't just, hey, guys, we're going to go do this live fire range and just go out there and start blazing, right? You you do like a leader's, you know, walk through so that everybody knows where the range fan is so that we're shooting, pro- you know, you do all of that stuff. So the military is keen on that, you know, everything that you do in the military is kind of a little bit crawl, walk, run. Right. At Delta, it's a little different. Like you throw live rounds in the gun and it's game on, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of, like let's shoot blanks, <laughs> you know. Right. Let's do this. Like, it's it's at a different level, you know. And it's intentionally, especially like the operator training course, it's intentionally designed that way. So you either sink or swim, and it's very apparent who who can't, you know, swim.
0: Right. And, and so I kind of wanted to dive on this, you know, as a so like you you get to the unit, and then did you serve with you know Pat McNamara? So. Um, was he, were y'all like in the same vicinity? Y'all worked in the same area? Kind of what, what was that like?
1: Yeah, we did for a little bit. Um, he and I didn't have a ton of interaction. He was definitely, you know, senior to me when I got there, but you know, he's, he's, a he's an intense dude and he, you know, he likes a lot of things. He's a creative guy. I think one of the things that surprised me just about, uh, guys there in general, it was. The creative nature, right? Because you kind of have to think and make changes faster than the enemy. So it requires a certain level of creativity to be able to adapt to things on the fly, make quick decisions, and move on to the next thing. You know, uh, I had an issue as simple as it sounds, you know, just to do this video thing, I was like, where the hell am I going to set my phone up? And I rigged this coat hanger from the closet, my hotel room, uh, to the lamp over by the window, so there's lighting and everything else. And like, okay, I got literally the two. Oh, wait, here we go. The two clips on the uh, coat hanger slid together, holding my phone like this on top of the lamp. It's just that level of solving problems, you know. Right. And interesting stuff.
0: And and you talk about creativity and and how you know. Uh, people from special operations are creative people, you know, from my experience, I would, I would definitely agree with that as well. And you talk about how that's healing, you know, you had a a long military career with a lot of uh, intense moments. And, and so I'm curious to get your take on transitioning and mental health and, and using that creativity to heal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Personally, um, I was ready to retire, you know, and ready to separate and go on and do other things. I think if I could have retired, you know, five years prior, I probably would have, but you have to stay until 20. And at some point you get to the point where you're like, well, it would be dumb for me to get out now because, you know, if I did four more years then I would have a pension for the rest of my life and healthcare and all that stuff. So for me, it came to a point of, you know, I, I would wanted to be doing other things. I wanted to Challenge myself in other ways. And I didn't want to, uh, you know, just continue to do the same thing over and over again. So I was ready for a new challenge, ready to try something different. And I also understood going into the whole transition process that, like, I'm going to lose some of my identity. You know, the thing that I sacrificed to be for 20 years um, is no longer going to be who I am. It's going to be part of who I am, but it's not. It's not going to be who I am. When people say, what do you do? It's not like I'm a Delta force operator. You know, Um, there was a certain level of pride and uh, patriotism that came with that, you know. And anyway, so for me, I enjoyed the first couple of years, uh, you know, being out and kind of doing my own thing. And then I started to realize that no matter what I'm doing, no matter how important it is, it's not going to be the same type of important thing that I was doing when I was still in the military. And so how do I get that feeling? How do I get that fulfillment, uh, feeling of purpose? Like I'm making a difference or I'm doing something. And so that's, that's kind of where the band thing started It was, I want to, I want to give back to the community. I want to do it in a way that makes sense for me. And a way that makes sense for me is definitely music because it's always been a huge part of who I am. And you know, feeling like I'm contributing in a way even though I'm not serving, I'm still contributing and helping the community out. And so anybody can do that. You just have to find what works for you. You've you found something, right? You found something that works for you. And so guys are starting podcasts, guys might be Helping be a technical advisor uh, in Hollywood, Uh, guys. I'm doing music. You know, there there are hundreds of things that you could do, thousands, millions of things that you could do. Um, But again, you know, for me, I wanted to be the example of someone could say, "Wow, this guy did this and this, and he lived through a lot of really nasty shit and dealt with a lot of stuff." And you know, if I can find a way to do something to find purpose and be fulfilled and give back to the community then anybody can do it you just and and it doesn't come like you know in a minute it 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 takes a while it took me a couple of years just to sort out the whole um yeah it's going to be music It it took me a long time
0: to figure that out so right yeah i can definitely uh i can relate to it and and only you know in comparison i i only tasted you know i barely scratched the surface but it does feel really good to give back and in my own way, having the podcasts, you know, helping these guys who are coming in. Um, it makes makes me feel like I'm giving back to something that that gave a lot to me, you know, so um, I can yeah, really...
1: I, I, I get this uh, thing. This was kind of an unintended consequence, but I guess, you know, you write music and it connects with somebody. And so for me, even though I'm giving back to the community and even though that's kind of like the admirable thing, um the thing that really you know i've seen you post about it recently but i'll get people that will hit me up and be like yo dude i was in a bad spot and i heard this song that you wrote and man it really helped me or i connected with it i love it it made me cry you know whatever it might be that that to me is a powerful thing like that's that to me is as powerful as it could get or the kids that hit me up and say like, dude, you inspire me to go do this. I've helped a bunch of kids that have gone to RASP and, you know, like given them guidance, connected them with the 75th recruiter and, you know, whatever it might be. But like, I never expected that. I never expected any of that shit. And uh, that that's a cool part. That's like the human part, you know, the thing that that makes you feel good. But, you know, that's not why I'm doing it. That's a part of, you know, part of the the thing that happens because I'm doing it.
0: Right, yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's uh some of it's kind of selfish, you know. Like it, it, it makes me feel good too to to help these these other people. You know, I, I want to see them succeed with all my heart. But there's a there's a part of it that's healing for me too. That's um, I feel makes me feel really good about what I'm doing. Yeah,
1: you're taking you know experiences that you learned, and you're helping other people to try and be successful at a at a thing that's really hard to be successful at. Yeah. You know, and that's that's uh, an awesome thing. Like we all want to share our experiences like I don't want to sit around and talk about Mogadishu all day. You know, if I can help if by talking about it or, you know, at least people understanding that I was a part of something that was that was pretty traumatic. um, You know, if that helps connect with somebody, if it helps connect with it, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a veteran. You know, there are tons of people that suffer from PTSD or whatever it might be. And if I can, you know, relate to one person, that's why I'm so down to like, I'll do any podcast. I'll jump on with anybody. I'm not just trying to be on Joe Rogan. If I can reach two people through this and help them, then it was all worth it. You know, it was worth the hour of my time or hour and a half of whatever, you know. It's
0: so awesome. Yeah, it's, I was, a, uh, I I was super thrilled whenever, uh, whenever you agreed to do mine. This is, this is really cool. This is really cool for me. and. um uh so you know I'm looking at uh at my final notes here, but i think I think we covered you know a lot of the stuff I wanted to talk about, so that being said, again, can you talk about your band and like where people can find your music, where people can find um find you guys and and support your band?
1: yeah, yeah, so uh one of the things like i like I said before, kind of at the beginning, um you know it costs a lot of money to make music. we're not asking anybody for money. We're making the music for free on our dime, and all you got to do is buy it, and we're taking 100% of the royalties that we make from selling music and giving those to two different charitable organizations. One of them is called Warrior's Heart, and that's a physical place in Texas that helps veterans and first responders that are suffering from PTSD. They get them counseling. They get them clean. And then they use art as a form of therapy, and that—that's the part that I absolutely love. So, you can check out Warriors Heart. Marine Raider Foundation is the other one, and that's—that's uh, that's an organization that gives directly to the families of Marine Raiders that were lost. Um, they've had some plane crashes, you know, in the not too uh, distant past. And you know, as an example, you know, not every family that. That has a loss at you know their son or their daughter or whomever, like they don't have the funds to fly the whole family across the country to go to memorial services or stay in hotels or eat meals, you know whatever it might be, so the Marine Raider Foundation takes care of all those, so we've uh you know we're contributing to those too um the music you can find it on anywhere you would get music, you know whether it's uh Google play, YouTube. Uh, 55 different, you know, streaming platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Um, if you want to help the band, and us be able to pay for, you know, gas to go rehearse and hotels and travel and all kinds of expenses, uh, you can buy merchandise. And, you know, 100% of those go to go to us to help try and recoup costs, even though it's, it's nowhere close, you know, like, probably 35 grand to just record the album and wow uh, like we don't sell that many t-shirts so (laughs) we're not not recouping that much money right Uh, i would love to sell that many t-shirts just so that we can make my my goal is to basically uh sell enough merchandise so that we're not doing it out of our own pocket you know if we could get it to a point where it's self-sustaining then then that would be great um with the new album you know there's a lot of work that's gone into that not just writing music but we'll release all new merchandise we've got all kinds of cool stuff we've got a publicist that we have to pay for that's going to help get the word out and same publicist as ozzy so you know we're we're talking with like a-list people um but we're hoping to branch out of not just you know the veteran and first responder community but you know to the general public and i feel like if our music can get out there and our message can get out there uh, you know, we'll have a lot of success. So looking forward to that, that should be album and all that stuff should be lined up for late summer, early fall. And uh, you know, depending on when record label wants to drop it and everything else.
0: Got it. And I'll leave, uh, I'll leave links to all those things in the description below the video. Cool. Uh, so people can find you, uh, find you guys. And, uh, and any final uh, thoughts for everybody before we end the podcast?
1: Yeah, man, don't quit. That's all you got to do.
0: Don't quit. I love it. Well, Brad, thank you, sir, for coming on the podcast. It's been uh, it's been great. And for all you guys tuning in, I hope you guys have a great day. Take care.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, dude. Thank you.